0: right. Good afternoon, everyone. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are joining us today. Uh, My name is Adrian Wong. I'm a consultant at King's College Hospital in London Critical Care. And it is my absolute pleasure and honor to spend the next 30 minutes talking to Professor Glenn Hernandez. Well, Professor Hernandez is a full professor in the University of Santiago in Chile. He is the coordinator of the Latin America Intensive Care Networks, and he is the principal investigator for the Andromeda shock studies. <clears throat> Welcome Glenn.
1: Hi, good morning, thank you for this invitation.
0: Thank you very much. Fantastic. It's like I said, It's a re- I'm really looking forward to this. So um, let's kick off then, um, full disclosures, Andromeda, the Andromeda trial is one of my favorite critical care trials of all times. Um, so, can you summarize the trial for us and how it has changed your practice?
1: Yeah, you know, we were uh, working with uh, peripheral perfusion for almost 10 years already. And we use it uh, for uh, as a trigger, as, as a target for septic shock resuscitation. And uh, because there were a lot of uh, background studies, epidemiological studies, Uh, uh, showing that uh, if you have a normal peripheral perfusion after resuscitation, you can stop resuscitation uh, uh, more faster, quickly, and you have better outcomes. So at the end, and and we were also, along the years, we became more and more um, uh, troubled with lactate, you know, because lactate, We know now very clearly that lactate has many sources and not all uh, of the cases of uh, persistent hyperlactatemia are related to hypoxia or hypoperfusion. So if you use lactate as a target, it, uh, it will uh, increase the chances that you get a fluid overload or the toxicity of over-resuscitation. So this is why we, at the end, we launched this Andromeda trial where we are compared two strategies. Two targets: uh, normal capillary refill time or lactate normalisation or, or clearance. And um, it is uh, I like it very much because uh, you know capillary refill time can be standardised, uh, mm-hmm. a very simple, uh, universally available technique. Uh, it's a bedside technique, uh, and so. And then uh, we demonstrated, as you know, the, we the study, the uh, show it at the end. Uh, a 8.5 decrease in absolute mortality, which almost reached classic statistical significance, but the world considered it a positive trial because uh, there are very few studies, uh, to the best of my knowledge, that uh, has a, such a strong difference. 8.5, I mean, I remember the Air Arts Net study, you remember. So, and then, are you surprised? Of, you, you sound surprised, yeah, and and, and also. Uh, uh, the patients in the CRT group had uh, less organ dysfunction, resolved the organ dysfunction more rapidly, and also they got less intervention. And this is is important because um, uh, it was part of the hypothesis that uh, because capillary capillary refill time and peripheral perfusion in general is a very um, flow sensitive variable. When I say flow sensitive, it means that if you increase systemic blood flow or cardiac output or perfusion pressure, it normalizes very fast in the patient that, of course, are going to survive, the patient that have a hemodynamic coherence, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it normalizes very fast. It almost we have seen patients when you give a just a fluid challenge, you increase a little bit and then peripheral perfusion normalizes. it's, it's the key for me is that it represents. The ischemia reperfusion process. When you see normalization of the skin, you, you uh, are a witness of reperfusion. And this is very important. Of course, you can say, maybe uh, who cares about the skin? No? Who cares? I mean, it represents physiologically the neurohumoral response to shock. to to shock. So when you increase systemic blood flow, the adrenergic tone decreases and these simultaneous processes lead to a reperfusion of the skin. And and there are very interesting studies, one from Brunauer and also from our group and others, that demonstrate that there is a sort of correlation between the reperfusion of the skin and the reperfusion of more important organs, such as the hepatosplatin region, because this is logical, because they, they share the same neurohumeral response that gets flow away from these territories. So it's, it, in this sense, it's very, very interesting, and the, the most important thing from my point of view, that it can be spread very rapidly to the medical community, it can be applied from. The Mayo Clinic and the sub saharan countries, I mean, everywhere, because you, you just need to touch the patient. I,
0: I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think one of, the, one of the reasons why I enjoy your study so much is the sheer simplicity of your um, study. Now, Glenn, given the fact that you've already said that you were already um, using capillary refill time as part of your practice in your department, your how did the did the trial actually change any of your practices? Were you using perhaps less lactate, more? You were less bothered about lactate. Has it changed your practice? Um,
1: I think that we uh, we assess lactate m- less frequently now, much less frequently. I think uh, it's imp- it's an important variable because uh, you know, well, of course, it's part of the definition of the actual 63 definition of septic shock, of course, but. Besides that, it's an important variable because uh, it gives you confidence. If lactate decreases, it's always good news. I mean, as a prognostic signal, and for example, if you start with the lactate and you confirm that, at least by the definition, you have a septic shock case, and then you measure again at six hours, and you see that lactate is decreasing, then you are more confident that you are going in the right direction. You know. And in the inverse, if lactate is increasing, this is bad news. Maybe it's not only about the the persistent or or worsening shock, but it may represent other issues. For example, an uncontrolled source of infection, necrotic tissue, uh, extreme hyperadrenergia, always bad news, so for me, it, it gives you a general uh, signal on, on you are going in the right or in the bad direction and, and alert, uh, a warning signal for complications maybe. But I wouldn't die if I have no lactate. I mean, that's, I mean so I, 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 I wouldn't give my life for having lactate. But if I have it, I would measure it just, uh, let's say every six hours, something like that, just to, to have this, mm-hmm. general, okay?
0: So, you, so you're measuring lactate less and less then?
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: Okay, right. I want to pick up on another element of your answer and discussion earlier, and you talked about flows. So I think in general, hemodynamic management in the intensive care setting has moved away from um, sort of pressure-based resuscitation onto flow resuscitation. So on that note, do you use any form of cardiac output monitor and if, if so, is that the cardiac output monitor of your choice if you had to redesign intensive care?
1: Yeah, I, uh, when I was young, uh, a few, a lot of years ago, you know, the, the, it, it was the time of the pulmonary artery catheter. I mean, it was the king, you know? I was so proud when I put myself a pulmonary artery catheter. I, I, I always tell residents now that in one night, in one night shift, I put four. I mean, it was, oh, <laughs> I, I felt like a hero, you know. But uh, at that time, you are too too young. I mean, but there, there were some, some studies that demonstrated that if you put a Swan catheter, you. Uh, with this information, you would change the direction of the treatment radically in almost 20, 30% of the patient. I mean, you were giving fluids? No, 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 stop fluids, give diuretics, you know? This was the studies at that time. I, I would say now, nowadays, with the availability of ECHO, it is very, very, very unfrequent that you put a PICO or a SWAN Guns, catheter, and you owe oh, a surprise. I mean, it's you, when you put the catheter, you almost you know what you are going to find. It's a sort of uh, I would I would uh, just uh, put this uh, continuous cardiac output as monitors just for the more complex patients. I mean, for patients we have a simultaneous ARDS and septic shock because then you can get lost in patients that do do not respond to early resuscitation and you see they are getting worse and worse. And I always tell my residents also that I would put a a continuous cardiac output monitor if I have to, um, let's say, start a second vasoactive drug. If you are only with norepinephrine, it's simple. You know what norepinephrine does, you know, in the preload, the heart, the after, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. You can you can almost guess with clinical signs, but if you put vasopressin, you add vasopressin, or you are thinking in starting epinephrine, and because the patient is getting worse, then I think you should because sometimes when you add a second drug, the cardiac function, the cardiac output can change unpredictably. I mean, and sometimes when you add vasopressin, some patients' uh, stroke volume decreases, and you have to see this, and. Um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, there is no continuous, I mean, in clinical practice, transthoracic at least continuous echo. So you, you, should, you, you should control echo every, but so in, in the more complex patient, I would definitively put these catheters, not because they are going to change dramatically the, the, the direction of the treatment, but because especially to detect un, unwanted side effects of what you are doing. Because if you add a second drug and you see a decrease in cardiac output, then you are doing very bad. I mean, so you can adapt, you know. Um, But I think that this is necessary in our our experience in less than 30% of the patients. Most of the patients, I mean, at least half, 60 maybe, they respond to initial resuscitation very nicely in general, and you can. As we, as I hope that we can demonstrate in the Andromeda two study, looking at the signals of the monitor, the basic monitor, especially the pulse pressure. The pulse pressure is a very, very physiologically sound and nice uh, surrogate of stroke volume. I mean, for example, you have a patient with a hypotensive patient, 80, 60, but to 60 is totally different as a patient with 80 to 30. 80 to 60, this patient has no, no, almost no stroke volume. Either he has an extreme low preload or he has a cardiac condition, a very severe one if you have a stroke volume of 20, I mean a, a pulse pressure of 20. So looking at the pulse pressure, when they call me in my ICU, I look from the far, side, I see the monitor, I see 80, 60, no, no, it's a problem. So do an echo, assess the preload, blah, 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 blah. But if you see a hypotensive patient with 80 to 30, this is septic shock unless proven otherwise, because you have no tone. And and then this, uh, you know, there is a lot of studies going on about the early use of vasopressor, blah, blah, blah. And, and, And this also has the, I think it contributes because the vasoplegia is not solved with volume. Because, you know, the, the first, the monkey reflexes to hey, push fluid, push fluid, because because he has a, 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 a diastolic blood pressure, a neglected signaler. Who cares about, I mean, it's so important. If you have a low diastolic blood pressure, this is very important a uh, news for the patient for management
0: or no do you agree with that? i mean well i'm going to, I'm going to pick out a lot of elements of what you've said um, glenn but if any of our viewers have any questions or comments etc just feel free to send them in i'll do my best to get through them but let's pick up a couple of elements from what you've said so echocardiography, you've mentioned, and you would use a continuous cardiac output monitor, in your case, the uh, PA catheter in the sicker group of patients. But yeah. one of the questions I've often been asked, especially in the way how hemodynamic management is being developed in intensive care practices, when you look at all these numbers, ultimately they are macro circulatory numbers. Macro circulatory. Yeah. What's your thought on the microcirculation and whether yeah. we should be looking at that more closely?
1: I, I, I totally agree, Adrian, with that. Um, there are two things. For example, when you look at the heart, for example, you look at fluid responsiveness, preload dependence, you're looking at the heart you, you are trying to, uh, to figure out in which part of the Stalin curve the patient is, no? I mean, when you look at fluid response. But and people think that this is the signal to give fluids, and I mean, oh, it's fluid responsive, we give fluids. But the, the, the big mistake is that you have to look at the other side, the microcirculation, the periphery, because what you do with the macrocirculation it has to be, should be, must be a function to improve tissue perfusion. I mean, who cares about the cardiac output of two, three, four, if you have normal perfusion? And then the point is, which are the surrogates, the signals, the variables that that tell you if the tissues are perfused or not? You know that unfortunately, there is no um, let's say universal, unequivocal sign that tells you about the uh, oxygen status of the cells, of the tissues. It's All are indirect, all are surrogates. All are surrogates, so I agree. All are surrogates. So, so which is the best surrogate about the microcirculation? In my opinion, uh, uh, it's biased, of course. I think that peripheral perfusion is close to the microcirculation um, because They will. I have worked with. We have worked with the microcirculatory, the SDF devices to assess the microcirculation under the the tongue. In our case, for almost 15 years, but uh, it will never, ever, go to clinical practice. In my opinion, it will always be constrained in the in the research area. No. So you have to look for surrogates. Surrogates. I mean, this is. But you have to. You have to make the mental link, oh, I will act over the macro, but for the sake of the micro, you know? You have to do this link in your, in your mind and then act accordingly, you know? This is, if you know that, you will uh, treat your patients better and you will um, move them away from the risk of over-resuscitation, fluid overload, you know? This is
0: the point. Okay, so I'm going to pick up on that because I, I think it's an area to think. So over-resuscitation um, and the issue around de-resuscitation, de-congestion. There's a lot of talk over about the whole concept and then and conceptually again it makes sense but the evidence is really not there yet. Your thoughts on the whole concept on de resuscitation decongestion should we be doing more of it should we be looking out for it more in our patients what should we be doing
1: i think if you provide uh, a more um, physiological resuscitation if you select the right targets if you identify the clinical phenotypes at least you you know which patient you have to treat with fluids in which you should use early vasopressors. Blah blah blah. This is the, the, the issue of Andromeda 2. You know the, the, the next study. Um, if you provide a more rational resuscitation, you will not uh, move your patient to the to the status of fluid overload in general. But sometimes you receive patients in your unit that are transferred. From other places, or that have been subjected to over-resuscitation in the OR, in the emergency department, occasionally, and then your decision is to, de-resuscitate. I mean, this is a, it's a. I think I agree with you, Adrian, that we need a lot of work on that. You know, because um, in general, you, when, you, you, when you have a big problem, a fluid overload, really, and you have a, pulmonary edema. And the patient is uh, approaching winning, and then you should get rid of these fluids in the lung, and you can now assess this very easily with echo with other devices you know um, should you resuscitate before winning I mean this is a we are doing we are working on this also in some physiological studies um, um and then To take the decision to use diuretics or call the nephrologist and perform a ultrafiltration, this is a a nice, a a complex decision. Sometimes, Uh, I can tell you that um, I am I am very critical about also the overuse of diuretics, the overuse of furosemide because it's people use it very liberally, you know, and it's a it's a toxic drug. If you don't use it with you can of course you can get move the patient to severe electrolyte disturbances hypernatremia hypokalemia um a- a- alkalosis and it's a toxic drug you have to use it very carefully and of course some aggressive resuscitation practices can induce hypoperfusion paradoxically really? so this is a, this is a matter of uh, discussion um for example we follow the the work with the bull, and when we have some degree of fluid overload, we we try to get rid very carefully of it, but when we approach the the winning process, when we approach the spontaneous breathing trial, we always look, you know what we look? We look at the fluid responsiveness, because if the patient is in the flat part of the stalin and you take out the positive pressure ventilation, you can easily induce a winning-induced pulmonary edema. So right. we always try, we, we feel more comfortable when the patient is in the, in the, in the step part of the Stalin cube, You cube. Know? So this, in, in, even we are doing a study where this is an, a, a target. I mean, before winning compared to a control group, a physiological study, we try to put the patients in the, in the step part of the Stalin cube as being fluid responsive. Mm-hmm. And this is better because even if you take out the positive pressure, then the, uh, the venous return can increase and even you can increase the stroke. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of looking at the heart.
0: Yeah? Physiology physiology in action. Yeah. Now, I'm, I know you're dying to tell us. Tell us about the Andromeda II trial that you have planned.
1: Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a very amazing, uh, fascinating study for us. It's a worldwide study. It will be performing 90, 90 ICUs, one of the biggest trials in terms of centers, in four continents: from the U.S. and North America, Western Europe, Latin America, and Asia. This is very nice, Adrián, because it will represent different cultures, different different uh, public, university, hospitals, di- 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 different, uh, uh, I mean, uh, even some uh, low-income countries included. So I think this is fantastic. And uh, it will uh, uh, recruit 1500 patients. And uh, the idea is to compare uh, uh, a strategy targeting CRT, but, but based on hemodynamic phenotypes that you can breed at the monitor, you know, to uh, uh, intervene, to uh, intervention strategy for six hours compared to usual care. And What is this? The the hypothesis is based in four things that will be applied. First, selecting CRT as a target. This is very uh, important because um, since CRT is not part of the septic shock definition, you know, in Andromeda 1, one in four patients, one in four had normal CRT at baseline. They had lactate, but they had normal CRT. This means, in my opinion, that this lactate in the definition was not hypoxia related because they were septic shock, they required norepinephrine. they had lactate, but they had normal CRT. And this patient received no further resuscitation for the eight hours of the patient. The same we will do in Andromeda two. Second, we will uh, Uh, apply a personalized algorithm, Mm. starting with things that you can look at the monitor, as I said before, the pulse pressure. If the pulse pressure is low, you go to the fluid uh, uh, section, I mean, for the algorithm. If the pulse pulse pressure is normal, you look at the diastolic blood pressure. If it is below 50, you go to adjust the norepinephrine and try to rise vascular tone. This initial individualization is new. No, no study in, in septic shock at least has applied this so easily, uh, I mean, uh, 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 achieved or, 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 or science that you can read in the morning. Third, we will uh, assess fluid responsiveness before and after every fluid challenge. This is, uh, it's, its uh, I mean, you have to work to do this. I mean, you have to be at the bedside to do blah, blah, blah. But it's important because in Andromeda One, when we uh, did the same, we uh, assessed fluid responsiveness at baseline and after the fluid challenges, one in four patients, again, that just were admitted to the protocol, they came from the emergency department, most of them. They have received the 30 males per kilo fluid. And one in four were already fluid and responsive. Fluid and responsive after receiving this initial fluid loading. And in this patient, the algorithm in Andromeda 1 uh, directed this patient to the vasopressor test or inodulators, and at the end, when we performed the post hoc analysis of this, this aspect, uh, they achieved the same amount of goals, the targets. I mean, and they had the same mortality, but they saved 1500 ml of fluids, unnecessary and probably harmful fluids. And the fourth aspect is to apply ECHO. Uh, if this first tier intervention do not uh, resolve the problem, they will, we will perform an ECHO there. Uh, uh, to start the tier two intervention, which are a little bit more complex, but especially to rule out severe left ventricular dysfunction and right ventricular failure. So this is the algorithm. I think it is not um, to save fluids. We think that as a consequence of this physiological strategy, at the end you will give fluids more rational with more uh, rationally, and. You will, uh, because of this, avoid fluid overload and probably get less organ dysfunction, etc. This is the hypothesis, and we will compare with usual care. So, this is this is the basis of Andromeda Two. I mean, I'm
0: for I'm, disclosures, I'm, I'm very, very excited about Andromeda Two, and I look forward to seeing the results of Andromeda Two. A couple of minutes left. But I want to ask you, when it comes to sort of hemodynamic fluid trials there's often this conflict between protocolized care, following a protocol, you see this number, you will do this, you see that number, you will do that, or consider this, et cetera, et cetera, versus personalizing it to the patients, this whole protocolized versus personalized treatment plans. Your thoughts, Glenn?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, for me, it's a, it's a mixture of the two. I mean, <laughs> it's a, I, I strongly believe and we, and we will try to demonstrate this the, the usefulness of uh, personalizing care based on, uh, on signals that you can easily read at the bedside. But you have, you have to have a, a background protocol that orders the intervention according to these signals a mixture of trying to look at signals that, in which you can recognize hypoperfusion or hemodynamic phenotypes but ordering the interventions according to this. It's a mixture, of, uh, I think, of, of the two. Uh, protocols with, that are not uh, physiologically sound. Uh, I remember, you know, the, the, the reverse protocol, for example, rising the CVP to eight to 12. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't do harm if you have a wrong protocol. with has no, no rationale, you know, but if you have a protocol that I think it's, it, it's useful uh, at the bedside.
0: Okay, so my last question to you, you, Glenn. You've done all this work now on resuscitation, shock, all sorts. What is the biggest fallacy in shock resuscitation that you want or the biggest unanswered questions in shock resuscitation that you would like to tackle, challenge, and perhaps even provide an answer? I think that
1: there is a confusion in the nomenclature. I mean, you should speak about acute circulatory dysfunction. When you have a low vascular tone, when you need fluids, you need vasopressor, this is a circulatory dysfunction. It is very common in the post-operative status of major surgery, whipple, liver transplant to have a little hypotension requirement of vasopressor, blah, blah, blah. This is circulatory dysfunction. Shock for me, is when you have hypoperfusion. When you have hypoperfusion, then you should resuscitate sometimes. And the, for me, the big fallacy is to every patient that is a little bit hypotension, has a low vascular tone that can be easily solved with small amounts of norepinephrine, for example, give fluids and fluids and fluids. And then, well, what are you treating? Are, are, are you trying to get rid of the vasopressors? Or are you you trying to restore tissue hypoperfusion? So for me, you have to, this distinction between acute circulatory dysfunction, vascular tone, hypovolemia, blah, 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 versus real shock, real shock is hypoperfusion. And this you should focus. I mean, this is the biggest mistake in my opinion.
0: Well, we look forward to your work and your attempts to try and answer and challenge that fallacy. It's the end of our thirty minutes. Like always, oh. Glenn, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I look forward to seeing you in Paris at the end of our at the end of the year at yeah, our ESITM so. conference. Thank pleasure, you. Glenn. Take care now and have a good day. Thank Thanks Thank everyone for much. listening in. Thank you very much. <laughs>